Before I get into the sermon, though, I'd like to bring up two things that have happened on this day in history, in recent history. The first was in 1864. The U.S. Congress mandated that all coins minted in the United States of America bear on that currency the inscription, In God We Trust. And that has been a very uh, hard sticking point for many people in this nation who uh, don't hold that there is a God or that we shouldn't be honoring him. But the fact is that there is a God, that this nation was founded on Christian principles. It was founded by Christians. All but one of the founding fathers are avowed Christians, and one of them was a prayer person, Benjamin Franklin. They say he was a deist. A deist cannot pray because a deist doesn't believe that God intervenes in human history. And yet he is the one that stood up when we had the impasse at the Constitutional Convention, and he said, do we think that after going through this great struggle, this revolutionary war, that we prayed day after day after day for the deliverance of the Lord. Do we think that now we can establish a nation without seeking the face of the Almighty? It was him that got the Constitutional Convention to get on their knees daily and to pray to God for direction and wisdom. So he was not a deist. Whatever he was, he was certainly not a deist. Every other founding father, a founding father in my term would be a person that signed the uh, Declaration of Independence for the U.S. Constitution. Every one of them was an avowed Christian, every single one of them. So we have in God we trust on our currency, and as I said, people are trying to remove that. People uh, generally to the left side of the political spectrum are riling against it, but that is where we are in the world today. Uh, also in 1970, the first Earth Day was uh, observed it was 1970 on 22 April, and uh, the reason why Earth Day was chosen on 22 April was because it was Vladimir Lenin's birthday, believe it or not. That's why. Is, uh, it is a communist agenda to usurp the rights of the people of the world, to do as the Bible mandates, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it and to enjoy the fruit of the earth, including animals and, and all the plants we eat, and to use the oil as we so see fit. Um, the communists in this nation are the ones that got this Earth Day thing going. And so as we uh, move away from reason and we start getting into green technology and things that aren't green at all, in fact, they, they cause more destruction to the environment than uh, they cure, and as we get into all of these uh, left wing agendas. We are actually moving towards communism. So it's funny how these two things happened on the same day, and they're both kind of working towards the same end goal, is the removal of God from our lives, our right to worship freely and on public property, as is a right in America, though some people don't know that. And um, anyway, so keep those two things in mind. Now, today, we're going to talk about Genesis 10, chapter 10, verses 6 through 20, which is the table of the nations. This is our second of three sermons in Genesis 10, and this is specifically relating to the sons of Ham, Noah's uh, third son. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the line of Ham is Noah's youngest son, and it has been the subject of an immense amount of abuse, especially directed at the people from the line of Ham. And they have tried to justify the practice of slavery based on the line of Ham and Noah's curse of Ham's youngest son, Canaan. The African people descend from Ham. And past scholars have used this logic in order to account for why it is acceptable to own slaves from this particular line of people. 
but the curse was a curse of servanthood, not of abusive slavery. Overall, Ham is the great ignored figure of Noah's prophecy, and the people groups who make up the line of Ham remain relatively outside of the main scope of the world's attention, despite being the talent behind, and you'll see this later, behind amazing achievements and inventions. Now, if you weren't here and you don't know this, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three sons' wives were the only people left on the face of the earth when the flood ended. So what happened is we are doing a sermon based on the three sons of Noah. Every human being on earth descends from one of these three sons. So I wanted to make sure that those of you who hadn't been following this are aware of this. The first one we did last week was the line of Japheth, where most Americans come from. This week is the line of Ham. Our text verse for today comes from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all tribes, nations, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now, there are precious souls from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues that will stand before the throne of God and worship. And so we need to remember that as we arrogantly look down on our fellow man. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought on the line of Ham goes back to an earlier chapter I believe it was chapter 8, it's the curse of Canaan, where Noah spoke these words to his three sons. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Ham, if you remember, did a reprehensible and offensive thing to Noah. But God had already blessed Ham. And so instead of cursing his youngest son, he turned and cursed his youngest son's youngest son. This curse, though, symbolically covers the entire line of Ham in the Bible. But it is especially directed at the line of Canaan. Verse 6, chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. More space is used in chapter 10 to describe the line of Ham than either of his brothers, Shem or Japheth. And for this reason, it is important to know who these people became and how they affect both God's people in the Bible and future prophecy. Ham means passionate or hot, but it also has the meaning of burnt or dark. And both of these descriptions perfectly fit the people who descended from Ham. Most of the darker people of the world, including the Australoid, the Mongoloid, and the Negroid peoples, descend from him. However, there are other dark groups of people found in both the line of Shem and in the line of Ham. The first of Ham's son who is listed is Cush. His name means black. And today, Cush is known as Ethiopia. The people of Cush were spread out as far as Arabia, and we know this because Moses' wife was called a Cushite, or an Ethiopian, even though she was from the land of Midian. So by the time of Moses, these two groups of people had intermingled. The second son is listed as Mitzrayim, that's his name, which means double straits. And they became the people who now dwell in Egypt, both Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, hence the name Double Straits. After him, 
Put is listen, listed. His name means a bow, and we've seen them rise onto the world stage in recent months due to the war in Libya. The Libyans come from Put, along with other North African groups such as Cyrene, Tunisia, the Berbers, Somalians, and the Sudanese, for example. For the most part, they have been a troublesome group of people in the world in many ways, and their name, a bow, is most fitting for their warlike attitude. Then we come to verse 7. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabtecha. And the sons of Ra'ama were Sheba and Dedan. Here we have the five sons of Cush listed. In the next verse, we're going to see another one. They're divided up and named based on their importance to the story of the Bible. And out of these five sons listed in this verse, only one son has his sons listed as well. That is Ra'ama, and his sons are Sheba and Dedan. Once again, those two groups of people are listed because they are relevant to the biblical story and how they are later going to interact with God's people. You might remember the Queen of Sheba came up to see Solomon, for example. These are the reasons why we see these names in there. These sons and grandsons spread around all of the borders of Israel, and they go from North Africa, and they swing all the way around Arabia and even up as far as where Iran is today. In a beautiful example of God's faithfulness to the line of Cush, which is the Ethiopians, we read in the book of Jeremiah about a guy, a eunuch, who descended from Cush. He is named Ebed-Melech. This guy saved Jeremiah's life by getting him out of a dungeon full of mud. It was so bad, he had sunk into this mud, it was so bad for him that the Ethiopian went to the king and he asked him permission to take him out of the mud. And in order to get him out of there, they actually had to take rags and worn clothes and put him under his arms and it took 30 people to pull him out of this mud and if they had pulled too fast they would have just pulled his body apart but this guy saved Jeremiah's life he was a faithful person to the covenant God of the Bible and because of what he did in the next chapter God remembered Ebed-Melech during the horrible siege and the eventual overthrow of Jerusalem and here's the words we read from God to Ebed-Melech Go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. And you might remember last week that I mentioned the very first descendant of Ham to receive Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. It was Acts chapter 8, was another Ethiopian, and surprisingly, he was another eunuch. He was the eunuch to Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and he was the first person in the line of Ham to receive Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Along with his other brothers, Cush begot Nimrod. This is a very enigmatic figure in the Bible, and he's only, only mentioned a few times there. His name means, we shall rebel. And it comes from the word Marad. You hear the similarity, Nimrod, Marad. Marad means specifically to rebel. The word Marad is used in three ways in the Bible. First, rebelling against God. Second, rebelling against a king. And the third, rebelling against the light. And that means both the 
real light, the physical light, and in a spiritual sense. Job is the one that speaks of it in the third way, and he was possibly thinking of Nimrod and his descendants when he said the following verse. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know his ways nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No one will see me, and he disguises his face. In the dark they break into houses, which they mark for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. The Bible says about Nimrod that he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He is the first active person mentioned of all of Noah's grandsons to this point. Up to this point, we've only had their names, and we've had places, but now we get real details on a real individual. There are two general ideas about what being a mighty hunter means. The first is that he went out and he hunted animals, just like we do today, and that he cleared the land of them in order to establish a place that was suitable to live in, and that is not likely. The second idea is that he rebelled against the Lord and against spiritual authority, and this is the picture that the Bible sets for him. Just like Cain before the flood, he has established a separate line from God and has gone into rebellion against him. Verse 10. And in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is its principal city. Nimrod was a mighty hunter, but he was also a mighty builder and he was a mighty leader. Just like Cain before the flood who established the first city and the first culture. It is Nimrod who follows the same path after the flood. The line of Cain, though wiped out in the flood, is spiritually alive and kicking through this guy, Nimrod. There are several ancient writings that speak of Nimrod. One of them says that he was mighty in hunting and in sin before God, for he was a hunter of the children of men in their languages, and he said unto them, Depart from the religion of Shem and cleave to the institutes of Nimrod. Another writing says, From the foundation of the world, none was ever found like Nimrod, powerful in hunting and rebellions against the Lord. Now, those two writings are not biblical, but they show us the belief that even in ancient times, Nimrod fought against the true faith of God and in the faith that is revealed through nature and through his fathers. The word for hunter, speaking of Nimrod, signifies prey. It is used when talking about hunting men through persecution, through oppression, and through tyranny. And it's likely that he acquired his power and used it in a tyrannical oppression to establish the first kingdom after the flood. So what is it about Nimrod that makes the list of people suddenly stop and highlight him? It's not only because of who he was, but because of the cities that he founded. His rebellion against God established the land of wickedness, which will come into play through the rest of the entire Bible. From this point on, even until the book of Revelation, there will be two cities of major importance which reflect two concepts in the Bible. Can anybody tell me what the two cities I'm thinking of are? Babylon and Jerusalem. Those are the two cities that come into focus, and the first one comes right at the verse we read. From this point on, even until Revelation, this is what we're going to see. The first city is Jerusalem, which is known as the city of wholeness and peace. 
It is the city where God dwells and where righteousness reigns. The other is Babylon, which means confusion. It is in the land of Shinar, and it is the city which is in spiritual opposition to God. It is where evil and where wickedness reigns. Babylon is east of Jerusalem. When man was sent out of the Garden of Eden, he was sent east out of the Garden of Eden. When the Israelites were in fellowship with God, when they were at peace with God, they possessed the land of Israel and they possessed the city of Jerusalem. But when they were disobedient, they were cast out of the land to the east, to Babylon, to the land of Shinar. But Babylon is not just a place in the Bible. It is also a concept of spiritual rebellion against God. The second exile of the Jews was not done by the Babylonians. It was done by the Romans. In his first letter, Peter writes from Rome, but he says this, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. God is telling us in his word that the Babylon of the future, the one that is coming in the book of Revelation, the one that's mentioned there as the great harlot, will be centered in Rome. That's right where the Vatican now stands. At some point, probably after the rapture of the church, when all the faithful Christians, whether they're Gentile or wherever, when those faithful Christians are taken out of the world, at that time, Rome will become the city which is in leadership of the spiritual opposition to God, and it will direct all of the forces of evil against Jerusalem, which is the city of peace. And this will certainly include an alliance with the people who live in the actual plain of Shinar today, which are the Muslims. In other words, the merging of the world's apostate religions, which have rejected Jesus Christ, will come together as one against God's people, Israel, in an attempt to destroy them from the face of the earth. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is, a servant of servants he shall be. Verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zamorite, and the Hamathite. Said earlier that more space is used in chapter 10 to describe the line of Ham than either of his other two brothers, Shem or Japheth. And of the sons of Ham, more space is devoted to the line of Canaan that we just read than any of Ham's other sons. This is because they are the ones that settled directly in and around where Israel would be. And so they have the greatest effect on the people of God. The name Canaan means merchant or servant. Eleven groups of people descend from Canaan. And remember, it is Canaan who received the curse of servitude from Noah. And these are the accursed descendants of him. Despite this, we are going to see later in the Bible that grace is found even towards some of these people. Knowing who these people are then helps us to understand the Bible as we travel through it. And to neglect this chapter and these names leaves us misunderstanding a lot of what God has done and what he is doing in the world. So passing through these verses too quickly will end at our own loss. Three examples from the Old Testament of people found in the line of Canaan who are granted the Lord's grace are recorded, believe it or not, in the women who would end up in Jesus' genealogy. There are five women that are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Mary, of course, we know she's an Israelite. And then we have Ruth, 
who was a Moabitess, who was also from the line of Shem. But we have three others, and all three of them come from this cursed line of Canaan. The first is Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of Judah, the son of Israel, and he was he and she were the ones that fathered Perez and Zerah. Okay? And despite the scandal which occurred there, Judah actually said, she is more righteous than I am. In the fair that occurred there, we see God's grace as she is put into the line or the ancestry of Jesus Christ. The second person that's recorded from the line of Canaan is Rahab the harlot who hid the spies of Israel and she was brought into the people of Israel when she married a guy named Solomon. The two of them together would have a son named Boaz who would become the great-grandfather of King David and the hero of the book of Ruth. And the third comes from the account between David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite. He was one of the sons of Heth, who was the second son of Canaan. And despite what occurred between the two of them, God's grace was bestowed on Bathsheba, and she was brought also into the line of Shem and into the ancestry of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we have another example from Mark chapter 7. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out from the region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-depressed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. The grace of the Lord Jesus was given to a woman from the line of Ham and from the children of Canaan because she was a woman of great faith. And I brought up last week Simon of Cyrene. He was the one who carried Jesus' cross to Calvary. Here's the account. They compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. It's very likely that this son of Canaan, Simon of Cyrene, not only served Jesus, but he became a servant of Jesus. In Paul's closing comments in the book of Romans, he writes this greeting. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. It is believed that this Rufus mentioned here at Paul's hand in chapter 16 of Romans is the same Rufus who was the son of Simon who carried the cross for Jesus. Simon then was the ultimate fulfillment of Noah's words of curse. A servant of servants you shall be. Jesus, the suffering servant, was served by the son of Canaan who carried the cross for him, even to Golgotha, where all curses find their termination. And whenever I read this account, I remember what happened between Peter and what happened between Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Here's the account. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me. Three times. Simon of Cyrene, the son of Canaan, 
replaced Simon Peter, the son of Shem, who promised Jesus that he would even go to his death with him. And symbolically, Simon of Cyrene did go to his death with him. He carried the cross for Christ. So you see how God is working these wonderful patterns in the Bible. I said earlier that we could spend weeks, and I mean that literally, on the names and the peoples listed in today's verses and how they weave through the Bible. But in order to reach the end of the Bible sometime this century, we're going to have to pass over a whole bunch of them. Pay attention to these tribes of people and the names of them as you go through the Bible, and I assure you, you will find riches that you cannot imagine in these three sons of Noah. Now, I'm going to ask you a question about the line of Ham and specifically about the line of Canaan. Of the 11 groups of people who came from him, can any of you tell me who the Jebusites were? Where they settled? Okay, where did the Jebusites settle? What city of biblical importance did they hold or the name of an important Jebusite? Can anybody tell me? Okay, I'm going to hand out a lot of F's today. That's why I say read your Bible. 154 days if you read it 30 minutes a day. This is one of the most important people in the Bible is a guy from the tribe of the Jebusites. He was a son of Canaan. Jerusalem is the city. It was settled by the Jebusites even after the conquest of Canaan. There were still people that remained in Israel after that time, and there remained a Jebusite presence in Jerusalem even up to the time of King David. The name Jebus, which he was given by his father Canaan, means treading down or threshing place. And surprisingly, this name becomes a prophecy of the point in history when David would buy the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So here we go. Jabus is his name. Almost a thousand or maybe more than a thousand years later, his name comes to fulfillment when David walks up and says, I need to buy your threshing floor. And there's a reason why he did that. We won't get into it today. But this threshing floor that he bought became the spot where Solomon's temple would be built. And it is the exact same spot where almost 1,000 years earlier, Abraham went to offer his son Isaac. And guess what? It is the spot that we call today the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it is the single most contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. And it's recorded right there, coming from the line of Canaan. It was conquered by David, became known as the city of David. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to stop right here, and I'm just going to give you kind of an uh, impromptu speech about the Temple Mount. Does anybody here know who owns the Temple Mount? I'm talking about the Temple Mount today. Who is the owner of it? Anybody tell you? It's contested, isn't it? It's the most contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. And I'm going to tell you who owns the Temple Mount. King David bought it from this guy, Arauna, the Jebusite. The deed is recorded in the Bible. It is a valid deed, and it is recorded right there as a purchase. That means that any living descendant of King David is the rightful owner to the threshing floor and specifically of the Davidic line, the kingly line. Any of his sons who reigns on his throne owns that piece of property. There is one person on earth who has his genealogy listed who is descended from David. We know that there are other descendants of David on planet earth, but we don't know what they're, we don't have a recording of their genealogy. But there's one person alive today that has the genealogy recorded, and it's not recorded just once, it's recorded twice. The reason why nobody else does is because the genealogical records for the Jewish people were kept in the temple. And in A.D. 70, that temple was burned down and destroyed when Titus came through with the Roman army. 
So there are no genealogical records anywhere except in the Bible. The person's name is Jesus. He is recorded as a son of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David, and he is alive, and therefore we know who owns the Temple Mount, and I can tell you where he is going to return to, and it won't be very long, I think. If you understand, then, who these people are in chapter 10, you can understand so very much more about our past, about where we are going, and how we are going to get there. That's how important these names are right here. Verse 18 continues, Afterward, the family of the Canaanites were dispersed, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. And then, as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Lasha. These locations are given in this account to indicate that the Canaanites settled in the land that would eventually be given to Abraham, and then to his son Isaac, and then to his son Israel. It is generally showing, by the, the names of the cities they just gave, that the land was filled by Canaanites from the north to the south, and from the east to the west. These cities are all going to be mentioned again in the Bible as we continue. Verse 20, these were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in the lands and in their nations. As you can see, the Hamites and the Canaanites figure prominently in the Bible. Many of these people groups were destroyed in conquest, they were destroyed in battles, but many of them survived partially intact and have interbred with other groups of people. The accomplishments of these people have been immense, and today Ham's children fill the earth. And that brings us to our third and final thought today, which is the Hamites near you. I was flipping through the TV just about a month and a half ago, and at our house, I gotta tell you, it doesn't take very long. I have about 15 channels, I have basic TV, and the only reason why I even have that is because if you get the internet without the TV, it's more expensive than it is with the TV, and I can't understand that unless they're just trying to get you to watch TV and get more channels later or something. But I'm flipping through these channels, and I came to the Archaeology Channel, which is actually a, a subdivision of another channel there. But as I was clicking through, I saw this uh, uh, guy, and he was talking about Mayan, Mayan hieroglyphs, and I thought, boring. But I stopped anyway, and I thought, I'll just take a quick look at this. And I was thinking, this must be some crazy nonsense about the Mayans and how they've predicted that the world is going to end on 21 December of this year. Instead, it was a guy named Dr. Mark Van Stone, who is a professor of art history at Southwestern College. He not only reads hieroglyphs, but he writes them out too. And while he was doing this, he was writing them out, he did a general greeting to the producer of that particular show. And I can tell you, it took an immense amount of labor and he used very special pens. It doesn't look like much, it looks like faces and stuff, but every little detail has meaning. It was incredible to watch. And to me, it was one of the most fascinating 10 minutes that I have spent outside of the Bible in eons. As I watched him writing, he'd enunciate each character and I thought, this guy, has dedicated his life to something that most people would pass by without a second thought. Here's this ancient language in a writing that nobody understands anymore, and this is being kept alive by a man from the sons of Japheth. You see, the Mayans descend from the line of Ham, and all of their great achievements indirectly reflect a part of this line of the sons of Noah. Along with the Mayans, we have the Aztecs, we have the Indians, and then you get over to the other side of the world, you've got Babylonians and many more, which I'll mention later. So what does it mean then to be a servant of servants in the context of the curse that Noah pronounced? Well, like I said, the curse was on Canaan, 
but it reflects the entire line of Ham. The line of Shem is God's servant to the people of the world in a spiritual sense. The line of Japheth is God's servant to the people of the world in an intellectual sense, and we talked about that last week. The line of Ham, however, has provided physical service and invention to the whole world, and therefore they literally are the servants to the servants, Shem and Japheth. Ham has become the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Two of the great ancient empires of the world, the Egyptians and the Sumerians, were from Ham. The seagoing Phoenicians descended from Ham. All of the African tribes and the Chinese and the Korean and the Japanese people and all over Southeast Asia, all of these people descend from Ham, as also do the American Indians and the tribes which move from uh, Asia over to the India, or I'm sorry, the Americas. Ham's sons were the original great explorers of the world, and they traveled to all parts of the world. They were the first people to cultivate food staples like corn, like potatoes, like beans, and other things. The Japanese people have made amazing developments in plant grafting and pollination, and most of the basic forms and types of building structures, the materials and tools used for building, all of these kind of things have come from the line of Ham. They develop many types of fabrics and sewing and weaving techniques and the implements for doing those things. Medicines and surgical instruments and all the medical practices going back for eons came from the line of Ham, as do most of the concepts of practical mathematics, surveying, and navigation. Banks, postal systems, commerce, machinery, and trade money, all of them came from Ham. And paper development, ink for writing, block printing, movable type, and many other forms of written communication skills come from the line of Ham. The further back you go, you find that almost every basic system or device that we use for living and for making life convenient come from the sons of Ham. And so you can see they really are a servant to the servants of God. In essence, they have been mankind's servants in fulfillment of this ancient prophecy of Noah. However, and despite this, almost all of their inventive skills have come to a certain point and they've stopped. Eventually, the sons of Japheth or the sons of Shem have stepped in and refined them to make them more convenient and more useful for us. And something else, just as we learned in last week in the line of Japheth about an interesting flood story, we have one from the line of Ham, too. The Chinese have a tradition that their first king, known as Fohi, which believe it or not is translated Noah, appeared on the mountains of Qin, which was surrounded by a rainbow after the world was covered with water. He sacrificed animals to God, just like the Genesis story, and he had a great-grandson named Sin, which is exactly the name of Canaan's son, Sin. And this guy lived at exactly the time that the Chinese culture developed. Even today, the Chinese culture is called the Sino culture, after the son of Ham and the son of Canaan. Another flood tradition within the Chinese culture comes from the Miao tribe, which is in southwest China. It's said that before missionaries ever visited these people, they believed that God had once destroyed the entire world by flood because of man's wickedness. But he saved a righteous man named Nua, his wife and their three sons, and Nua's sons' names were Lohan, Ham, Loshen, Shem, and Yahu, or as Japheth is said in Hebrew, Yapet. And 
they, with pairs of animals, were all saved by, believe it or not, building a giant ship. So we see another flood parallel, very similar to Japheth last week. The Chinese also have a book of history, which is known as the Shu Jing, which was compiled by Confucius. This book speaks about an emperor, Shun, who lived about 2200 BC, surprisingly enough, right at the, after the time of the flood, and it is also when the first Chinese dynasty developed. He worshipped and sacrificed a bull to a god named Shangdi. And believe it or not, Shangdi corresponds to Shaddai in the Bible. God Almighty or El Shaddai. Apparently, these sacrifices to Shangdi went on until 1911, when the last Chinese emperor was deposed. And that was right about the time that my grandmother lived in China. So they were sacrificing to Shangdi right up until modern times. Of all of those who descend from the line of Ham, Three in particular have had a huge impact on my own life. You see, the prettiest Hamites in the world are my wife, Hidako, my daughter, Tangerine, and then, of course, along with my son, Thor, these are the Hamites that are closest to me. And like so many others from around the world, from the line of Ham over the centuries, God has shown grace and favor on them. The wonderful story of the Bible is that despite who we are, or where we come from, God looks at us all the same when we call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter what color a person is, where they were born, how much money they have, or any other thing. All of us are or were enemies of God. But he reaches out his hands to us through the pages of the Bible, and it tells us of the person of Jesus Christ. And how Jesus was willing to give his own life in exchange for ours. He gave up his perfect life for the things that we have done wrong. We are either sons of Shem, we are sons of Ham, or we are sons of Japheth, and they are all sons of Noah. And Noah was a son of Adam. And every person on earth after Adam bears Adam's guilt. And Jesus wants to take it away from us. So give me a minute, let me tell you how. The Bible says that we all have sinned. Now, we've all sinned individually, and everybody knows that. And if you say, I've never sinned, then I can't help you with that. But it's true. We have sinned. Not only have we sinned individually, but we sinned through Adam. We've inherited his death. That means we are all born spiritually dead. But Jesus Christ said that I will make you born again if you call on me. And Genesis, I'm sorry, John chapter 3 talks to Nicodemus about being born again. What that means is a spiritual rebirth. We are born physically, but we are physically alive, but spiritually dead. Jesus wants to make us physically alive and spiritually alive. And the moment that we call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and say, I have sin in my life, and I want that sin to be taken away from me. And we call on Jesus, he makes the substitute possible because of his perfect life. The Bible says, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It says that the wages of sin is death. That means that we died because of our sin. And it says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That means that we have earned death, something that is coming to us whether we want it or not. But the gift is something we cannot earn. It's something that is just bestowed on us by grace. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he gives us one condition in the book of Romans. If we call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's all that God wants you to do is to say, I can't do it myself, and I accept Jesus' payment in exchange for mine. Now, I've got a uh, poem that I'd like to read you. I did this as I typed the sermon, and then uh, I've got uh, 
that one thing we're going to do on the Talit, if you'd like to do that, and then we'll take communion and we'll be gone. This is called the line of Ham. Noah's youngest son had the name of Ham. He displeased his father doing a disgraceful thing. This put his life into a real jam, and on his youngest son a curse it would bring. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. From these four groups, Ham's line has spread around the world. Cush had six sons to carry his name on, and so his seed spread as his descendants' lines unfurled. Cush begot Nimrod, a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He did great things, but his actions brought a dearth to the spiritual life of many of Noah's horde. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne. These cities he built in the frightful land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, and also Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rizan. He built them near and far. Mitzrayim became the people of Egypt, where it is now, and they grew into six more groups as the years passed. From these came the Philistines, who pestered Israel somehow. But the Israelites, by them, the Israelites were continuously harassed. Canaan, the one to whom Noah directed his curse, became 11 groups of people that settled in the land. They spread around, never fearing the worse, but they were eventually displaced by Israel and God's mighty hand. Despite being a servant of servants and the unfavored son, the line of Ham, great things they have done. And many of these people did our precious Jesus save because for all of Noah's sons, his life he gave. People from Ham's line all around the earth celebrate Jesus' victory at the cross of Calvary. And of Jesus' name, they too proclaim his worth. Jesus is the savior of all people, you see. And to this day, we remember Simon of Cyrene, who carried the Lord's cross up that hill of Calvary. A servant of the servant is how Simon is seen, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. And for me, what a blessing the line of Ham has been. My wife and children all came from this line. But like so many others, they were washed from every sin when they called out in faith, yes, Jesus is mine. Thank you, Lord, for grace upon the people of the earth. May we ever sing your praises and of your infinite worth. Hallelujah and amen. So let me real quickly go through this about the Talit just so you understand what this is and what the significance is and why I wear this thing all the time. As a matter of fact, what I'll do is I'm just going to read you as we go through here and I'll explain it. The first time that this is mentioned, actually, let me tell you what this is first. This is a Talit. It's a prayer shawl that's used in Israel. And these are known as tzitzit. Tzitzit are the, the tassels at the end of them. These were mandated to be worn by the people of God in the book of Numbers, all right? And actually, it's supposed to have a blue thread in there, but because this is not a prayer shawl that is used during the temple times and in the land of Israel, it doesn't have the blue thread. But this is a talit. These are tzitzit. And let me read you the passage from Numbers 15. This will take about 10 minutes, and I hope you can hang around for this because it's kind of interesting. Numbers 15, and we got verses 37 and 39. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you may not fall into the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. So this is to remind them of the covenant of God and to be faithful to it and to remember the commandments in that covenant. And 
as I said last week, and I'll explain it again, throughout the years, the Jewish people were not allowed to wear the uh, talit out in open. And so what they did is they would wear it under their clothes, but you'd see the tassels, and you'll see this to this day, Jewish people walking around with these tassels hanging out of their clothes as a symbol to remember the covenant of God, despite the afflictions that they were going through throughout the whole world. In Deuteronomy 22, it is mentioned again, the uh, the, the same commandment is reiterated to the people before they went into the land of uh, Canaan, during the conquest of Canaan. And then in Ruth 3.9, we read this beautiful passage here. This is where Ruth is the Moabitess. She's come to the land of Israel. Boaz, the owner of this property, has taken an interest in her. She's probably kind of a good-looking lady. And uh, so they have this thing going on from a distance. And... Uh, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said, you know, it's time for you to find a husband, and uh, I think we can find somebody that will be a good husband for you in the person of Ruth, even though she was older. But here's the account. It says, and he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. And what she was saying was, he had his prayer shawl with him as he was sleeping, and she was saying, put this over me. Put your prayer shawl over me. And this tali on the end of it is the authority, his authority is invested in this tzitzit. Put this over me and you have authority over me. Okay? And as I explained last week, I don't want to get too far ahead, what they would do with this is each Jewish family would take their tzitzit and they would weave it into a particular pattern. They just, you know, there's an infinite number of patterns that you can do in here. And each pattern was a reflection of the family's authority. Just like the uh, English people have the, you know, what do you call them, the shields with their, uh, what do you call that, the, the what? Coat of, Coat of arms, thank you. Well, the Jewish people have reflected in their tzitzit a weaving. And what they would do is if they had to sign something, they would take and they would press that into the clay. And that would be their symbol of authority. And so we're going to see the sim symbolism of that coming up here in just a minute. But that is what Ruth was saying, is put a wing over me and you are... You have the right to have authority over me. I'm giving myself to you if you want me. Okay. In 1 Samuel 24.4, we read a really interesting thing about the uh, talit and the tzitzit. 1 Samuel 24.4, if you remember the story, Saul is chasing after David to kill him because he knows that David has been anointed and uh, will take over as the king of Israel if he doesn't wipe him out. So he's chasing him along. He goes into a tent, I'm sorry, into a cave to relieve himself and Hiding in this cave are David and all of his people. And his people under him say to David, here's your chance to kill Saul. God has delivered him into your hand and go kill him now while he's doing this and you will be the king of Israel. And David says, I'm not going to kill him. There's no way. But it says this, um, then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He cut off the symbol of authority. And then later, Saul went out of there and David called out to him. He was up on a hill and he said, listen, uh, obviously I mean you no harm because you were delivered into my hands and I could have killed you. But instead, all I did was cut off this seat seat from your garment, and Saul said, surely I know you will be king of Israel. And he was saying, you have the symbol of my authority in your hand. And so even, you know, David, his heart was stricken with remorse that he had done this. 
but he was merciful to Saul by not killing him when he could have. But Saul knew the significance of what had occurred when he had cut off his symbol of authority. And then we come to another passage here in Malachi 4.2, the last book of the Old Testament, and there's a prophecy coming up about something to happen in the New Testament, in the book of Malachi. And we read these words in one second here, Malachi 4, verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like, a stall, like stall-fed calves. Okay, so Malachi is prophesying that somebody is going to come with healing in his wings. And of course, they would walk around like this, and it looked like wings on them. It's speaking of the coming Redeemer. And the fulfillment of that is found in Matthew 9, verse 20. And I know I'm skipping over a whole bunch of these in the Bible. I just did this real quickly a day ago, just so that you could get a feeling of what the symbolism of this is. In Matthew 9, verse 20, it says here, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. She touched the hem of his garment, the symbol of his authority, which is the tzitzit attached to his talit. And that's where the healing in his wings comes from, which was predicted by Malachi 430 years earlier. And then we have in the book of Acts, chapter 10, a really interesting account, which is most likely, not certainly, but most likely a talit as well. Not the tzitzit. The talit is the garment. The tzitzit is the tassel on the garment. But in Acts, we're going to get there. And I think I said Acts chapter 10, verse 11. It says this. Okay, and then he became hungry. This is Peter. He is in a room, an upper room, and he was praying, and he's waiting for lunch, and he's getting hungry, and he had a vision. And it says here, then he became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed you uh, must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken into heaven again. And we learn later the symbolism of this is not only sanctifying meat for us to eat, any meat as being redeemed from the law by Jesus, but it's also signifying that God is accepting people. All of these various animals are representative of all the various people on the earth. And he's dropped the sheet down and he's saying, in my wings are all the people of the earth. And so it's a symbol of the redemption of Jesus Christ in his talit. Okay? And then, of course, we have one more wonderful passage right in the last book of the Bible. We talked about this last week, and every time I talk about this, it just makes my hair stand up, is the return of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 19. And that would be in verse 16. It says this. I'll go back a couple verses. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had on a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of and wrath of almighty God 
and he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or Melech Melechim Adonai Adonaiim. And what it is is he's got this robe and it says he has this name written. Well, where is it written? It's written in his talit. And when you're sitting on a horse, of course, your talit is resting on your thigh. And so on his robe and on his thigh are the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there you go. You see the splendor of what God has done in the Jewish people. Jesus Christ was a Jew. He lived a Jew. He died a Jew. He is going to return as a Jew. He is a Jew forever, and he is going to return to his people, Israel, and he is going to defend them, not because they deserve it, but because they are his people and because he has made an everlasting promise to them. So there you go. The talit, the tzitzit, and that is why I use this every single week when I give the communion and when I give the benediction at the end of it is because this is what Jesus would have worn as he lived his life on earth and when he gave the same blessings that I give he would have given them in the tongue of Hebrew wearing his prayer shawl so having said that we'll go ahead and take communion and uh, then we'll get you all out of here And in kind of a nice merging of uh, the lines of Shem, we have the line of uh, Israel, and we've got the uh, line of, uh, I'm not sure which one, but uh, my good friend over here, Rhoda, gave me one of these, which is what the Arabs use when they wear their kefiyah, kufiyah, right? Okay? And so she got this for me because when it's real windy on the beach, this will help hold it on. So I'm kind of merging a couple of the, uh, the sons of Shem's cultures together when we do this. But we'll go ahead and take the Lord's... Supper. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And this is what Paul writes there. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he gave thanks. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melecha olam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And because we have some visitors here, I'll real quickly explain the significance of the bread, which is not what most churches do in America, is this is the Jewish bread known as matzah. And as you look at it, if you take it and hold it up to the light, you'll see holes in it. It's been pierced, just like the back of Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and so we crushed the bread. Well, this matzah also has no yeast in it. Yeast throughout the Bible is a picture of sin. And so this is yeastless bread, just as he was the sinless son of God. And it forms a picture of him when you look at it and what he went through on our behalf. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, he gave the blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melecha olam borei pari hagafen. This cup of the new covenant is in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Okay, let me give you the benediction and just a reminder that 10.30 next week, if you're in Sarasota, we'll meet out at the uh, beach and it won't rain and it won't be windy. It's going to be perfect weather. And uh, that'll be on the line of Shem, which is the line which started with Adam, went through the sunset, that went through Noah, Noah's second son, Shem, and you're going to see it follow through Abraham. It's going to follow through Israel, through Judah, and eventually it's going to lead right to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the line of Shem. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yeberechecha Adonai ve'yishmerecha. Ya'er Adonai panav eliecha v'kunecha. Yisa Adonai panav eliecha ve'yesem lecha shalom. Amen.